Our scripture reading today will be taken from Romans chapter 3. If you'd open your Bibles there, please. Romans chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 9 to 20. We're in a context in which the Apostle Paul has been establishing that we need the righteousness of God. These hymns we're singing are just fantastic hymns in light of this book of Romans. But he's establishing we need the righteousness of God in order to have a relationship with God. And then he's attacking the arguments that people use because people get caught up in their religion and in their works and they're trying to say that they can somehow work their way into a good deal with the Lord. And Paul's shattering that theology and that kind of thinking. And he really goes after it as we look at our text this morning in Romans chapter 3 beginning at verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there's none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands, there is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they've become useless. There's none who does good, there is not even one. Their throat is an open grave, with their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. I don't think you could get much clearer in a text of Scripture than that one. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of the Word of God and the exposition later. Will you join with me, please, in prayer? Our Father, we bow before thee this Lord's Day, and having read a passage like this, we just want to say thank you for grace. When we read a text like this one, we certainly see we do not deserve thy grace. We cannot merit thy mercy. We cannot earn your favor. We see that what we are is a depraved, convicted sinner, and only our boast can be in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, when we honestly analyze ourselves in light of that list of things that you went through in this text in Romans, we're amazed that you loved us. We're amazed that Jesus Christ died for us. We're amazed that you would want us in your family, but we thank you so much. Thank you for caring for us. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for providing for us, protecting us. Thank you for directing us. And we ask that your grace would superabound in our lives and also in the life of the church. We pray that your spirit will dominate us and dominate this ministry, dominate the people connected to it. Lord, we're after thy truth. And we ask that you would lead your people into truth and lead people here who have that same passion. We want to thank you for churches all over this country, Lord, that are after truth. We pray your blessing on them today. We want to pray for the needs of thy people here. There are people today with physical needs, Lord. There are people today with material needs and emotional needs and spiritual needs. And you're the God who knows each and every one of us individually and intimately, and we pray that you would meet the needs of every person here today. We thank you for the privilege we have of living in this country, the United States, what freedoms we enjoy. Thank you for the English translations of the Bible that we have available to us in just abundance. 
Lord, we want to pray for our government. We pray for government at all levels that you would continue to direct them and use them, Lord, that they would make decisions that would be right in thy sight, that you would put those in power who will do things that will be of benefit to thy people. We pray that you continue to watch over this ministry and protect this ministry and use it. We pray that you would cause us all to grow deep in our relationship with the Lord and that we would finish life pleasing to thee. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. When you uh, talk to most people, most will admit they aren't perfect. Of course, you could say, well, why aren't you? I mean, nobody really kind of follows that up with that. Why aren't we perfect? What's wrong with us? And even though most people will admit they aren't perfect, at the same time, most won't admit that they're not right with God because of that. In fact, most people really think they can measure up to the scales of the righteousness of God. They're not a drug dealer. They're not a sex trafficker. They're not a bank robber. They aren't bad like the bad crowd. Their idea is when I get before God, you know, I'm pretty good. God's going to take my good works and put them on his scales, and they'll tip the scales in my favor, and I'll end up going to heaven. That's the way most people think. That kind of thinking is not only delusional, it's dangerous. Because that kind of thinking will never give a person a relationship with God. It will earn them eternal condemnation. One of the main problems we have today is that people will not admit the truth about their own guilt. In fact, most people will blame their guilt on others. They'll never say, you know, this is my fault. I'm the one who did it. I take full responsibility for the choice I made and the responsibility for what I did. And that is certainly true when it comes to God. People like to think of themselves as pretty good in the sight of God. In fact, there are counselors and psychologists and religious ministers that will tell you that's the way you should view yourself. You should love yourself and believe in yourself because you're basically a good person. They'll tell you, have self-esteem, high self-esteem, and just realize this, God loves you just the way you are, faults, failures, and sins. After all, God knows nobody's perfect, and in the end, he'll just overlook the bad stuff, and you'll end up fine. That thinking is the thinking of most people, and frankly, most people are going to end up burning in hell. And that's not just my opinion. That's what Jesus actually said. When Jesus was here, he said, broad is the way that leads to destruction, narrow is the way that leads to life, and few there be who find it. Few. Not the majority, few. See, what most people don't realize is that salvation is all about the righteousness of God. And the problem is none of us can achieve the righteousness of God by our works. It has to come by faith in Jesus Christ. God is a righteous God, and he does not see sinners as being a bunch of good people. His righteousness will not permit him to just overlook and forget about someone's sin. No matter how trivial we may think it is, his righteousness will not allow that. He sees all humans as sinners and all humans as guilty and all humans targets of his wrath. And if ever there is a text of scripture that makes that point clear, 
It's this one here in Romans. What Paul says here is every human being is guilty before God and apart from faith in Jesus Christ, every person will be condemned due to his own lack of righteousness. Now I want you to notice how verse 9 begins. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. Notice the point of verse 9. All humanity is sinful. There is a human equality to depravity. It doesn't matter who the person is. It doesn't matter how religious the person has been. It doesn't matter whether or not they've been a heathen. We're all sinners. And if a person has not placed his or her faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, he, she is lost and condemned. That's not what I'm saying. That's what God says. Paul says in revealing the gospel, all are under sin, both Jews and Greeks, religious, non-religious, all are under sin. And what he uses that preposition under, all who are under sin, it means at least five things. From God's perspective, all are under the control of sin. From God's perspective, all are under the power of sin. From God's perspective, all are under the authority of sin. From God's perspective, all are under the guilt of sin. And from God's perspective, all are under the condemnation of sin. You do not come out on top when it comes to sin. You're under sin. And sin wins, we lose. If one has not believed in Jesus Christ... And has not been the recipient of the righteousness of God that God judicially gives to that one who believes in Jesus Christ. This is the way God sees us. We're not viewed as just not being perfect with just a few problems. We're viewed as being people under sin. And there are three reasons why God sees every human this way. And first of all, it's because of his assessment. I want you to notice verse 10. We read, As it is written, there's none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks God. All have turned aside together. They become useless. There's none who does good. There is not even one. In these verses, we get a glimpse as to how man really looks from God's perspective, and this is not a pretty picture. This is how God sees you if you don't have Jesus Christ in your life. Let's just get real on this. If we don't have the righteousness of God imputed to us at a moment of court in God where God says, that person's believed on my son, now I'm going to view them as righteous and impute to them the righteousness of my son. If we don't have that moment, this is the way God sees us. There are six assessments that God makes concerning every human being. This is like God's theological x-ray or MRI of every human being. And the first assessment is, no man is righteous. No man is righteous. That's how he starts this out. There is none righteous, not even one. Now, we already have learned that God's not a liar. All men are liars. So, when God says there's none righteous, it's because there are none. Zero. That's what that means. Righteousness is not something that God views as coming in various degrees. You either have it or you don't. You either have the righteousness of God that's found in Jesus Christ or you don't have it. 
And it cannot get much clearer than this. There's none righteous, not one. And the contextual point is, according to God's standard of righteousness that would be required to have a relationship with him and to have everlasting life, there is not one person on the face of this earth who has ever or who does measure up to the standard of God and meets it. And the picture God gives of man is not new, that's been invented here by Paul. In fact, Paul is quoting here from Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 to establish this assessment comes straight out of the Old Testament. Now, your righteousness may mean something to the people of this world, and it may mean something to you. You may look at yourself and compare yourself to others and say, well, I'm way above them. Problem is, you're up against the righteousness of God. You may be quite impressive by your own righteousness, but it doesn't mean a thing to God. And let's see if I can illustrate the point. Let's say you're in prison, and at this prison, they've come up with a way to earn monopoly money. Through your good works and good behavior, you can earn monopoly money, and you can take it to the prison store, and you can exchange it for soup, smokes, and snacks. Now it's time for you to get out of prison, and you've got a stack of this Monopoly money that you take with you. You take this Monopoly money that's been earned by all of your good works, and you go into a store outside of prison, try to earn it. And they'll say to you, your money means nothing. Outside here, where we work with dollars and change, your Monopoly money that you earned in prison means nothing. No matter how much you earn by your works there, it doesn't count. Because you were in prison. And that is the way it is in comparing our world to God's world. We are all in the prison of sin. We may earn by our behavior a bunch of works that really stack up big in the eyes of other people. But we're up against God. And when we stack up our works against God, it means nothing because we are all sinners and there is none righteous, not even one. Which brings us to his second assessment, no man understands. The text says there in verse 11, and there's none who understands. And the participle understands means to know something or perceive something in a true, accurate, perceptive way. The idea of the word is true understanding when it comes to spiritual things. Paul says you need to understand this. There's not a person in and of himself on this earth that has a true, accurate understanding of himself and of his sin versus the righteousness of God. You don't even know, I don't even know how many times we've sinned against God. Do you? Do you have that knowledge? People in and of themselves have no accurate perception of their own depravity. They can't even number their sins. They can't even count them all. They don't see themselves as being under sin. They see themselves as basically good because they don't understand this. They don't have a clue as to how righteous God really is and as to how far short of the righteousness of God they have fallen. You know, I heard an interview with an Olympic swimmer who was asked, what's the perfect race? And the swimmer said, I don't know because I don't know what the perfect time is. And that's a great answer. Truth is, no man on his own even begins to understand the righteousness of God. He certainly does not begin to grasp the depths of his own depravity. 
He doesn't begin to know the perfection of God. He can't even comprehend the perfection of God. He doesn't understand it. That's what God says. No man understands. Thirdly, no man seeks God. And he says in verse 11, there's none who seeks for God. You know, there's a real deception that people have about themselves and they have it about others that they're out there seeking for God. No, no, no. No, that's not what they're seeking for. See, almost all men are drawn to religious stuff, but they're not drawn to truth. And they're not drawn to seek a real relationship with God based on a close relationship with Jesus Christ. They're not drawn to that. At the root of every religion in the world is someone seeking something other than God. Men like to seek things other than a relationship with the true God. I mean, men go out there and they'll seek a denomination. Or they'll go out there and seek a religious place that has their traditions that they like. Or they'll seek some place that features the rules that they're used to. Or they'll go out there looking for some religious experience. But nobody is really after a deep relationship with the Lord based on the word of God. And what Paul says here is... No man in and of himself seeks for God that way, but man in and of himself is on the run from God. Now, the Greek grammar is strong here. It emphasizes there's absolutely no one who is seeking and searching in a relationship with God, and it's a present tense participle, which means there isn't a person on this earth that is continually after a right relationship with God in and of themselves based on the word of God. They're not after that. They're not after that. You say, well, just wait a minute. I sought God one day in my life when I accepted Christ. Well, let's check doctrine on that point. Let's go back to the book of Genesis and the story of Adam and Eve. When they sinned, who went looking for whom? When Adam sinned, he didn't go looking for God. He ran away from God. It was God who had to track him down. Let's check that in view of the teaching of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. The fact is, ladies and gentlemen, we were so sinful in and of ourselves, we weren't out there seeking a right relationship with God based on the word of God. It was God who sought us. It was God who called us. It was God who convicted us by his spirit. Frankly, it was God who saved us. And I think you are here today listening to this, and not by accident. I think you have the sovereignty of God at work here. He is seeking people to come to terms with truth. He is seeking people to come to terms with sin and seeking people to come to truth about salvation. But Paul says, make this very clear. No man in and of himself seeks God. God's fourth assessment is all men have turned aside from God. Look at what verse 12 said. All have turned aside. Together they become useless. Now, notice what this says. Just look at the text. I'm not making the words up. All, not some. God's a truth-setter, we're liars. Get that. Humans are liars. 
All, not some, have turned aside in life from the word of God. All, not some, have turned aside from the will of God. All, not some, have turned aside from the righteousness of God. Every person has turned aside, which means they have made a decision in life a time or two to actually do just the opposite of what the will of God is, what the righteousness of God is. They have made a decision to do what's evil and sinful in the sight of God. If a person has a choice, they've made wrong choices multiple times. All people, not some, all. In life, there is the path of the world. In life, there's the path of our own flesh. In life, there's the path of the devil. In life, then there's the righteous path of God. All men have, on multiple occasions, chosen every path except God's path. In fact, this is the way Isaiah said it. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. All of us have turned to our own way. The fact is, without the work of God, man left to himself will choose the wrong path every single time. That's God's assessment of humanity. His fifth assessment is all men are useless, and together they become useless. Boy, Ekraao is the word here. A very odd Greek word. It's not pretty. God says, I'll tell you the way I look and see humanity apart from the righteousness of my son imputed to someone. They're of no profit. They're worth nothing. Now here is a slap in the face of proud, arrogant man. No matter what man achieves, no matter what man accomplishes, you have almighty righteous God looking at him saying, you're useless. Your religion is useless. Your works are useless. Your attempts at keeping the Old Testament law is useless. Your attempts at following discipleship plans are useless. Your offerings are useless. Your worship is useless. It's all worth nothing. God says, apart from the righteousness of my son, that's the way I see it. You're useless in the sight of the Lord. And let's illustrate that point. O.J. Simpson killed Ron Goldman, slit his throat. That's a fact. He slit his throat. Now, he lives in a nice gated community in Las Vegas. But no matter what he does... no matter how kind and congenial he appears to be... no matter how much he has... He's useless in the sight of Fred Goldman. There's not a thing he can do to change that because he can't bring his son back. That's us in the sight of God. No matter what we do, no matter what we have, if we are not in a relationship with Jesus Christ and we do not have the righteousness of Jesus Christ in our lives, God says you are useless. And then he follows it up and says, no man is good. Verse 12, there's none who does good, not even one. When we speak of total depravity, we're not saying that there's not some good in a person. What we're saying is there's no good in a person that will ever satisfy God. Now, people can play a game and look good to other people. Especially when it comes to spiritual stuff. They learn how to play that game. 
The Jews were playing that game. The Gentiles, many of them were playing that game too. I mean, they went regularly to the services. They knew how to play that game and they looked good to each other. They didn't look good to God. God said, this is the way I see it without the righteousness of my son. You're never going to be good enough for me. And that's not just seen in the New Testament. Solomon said in the Old Testament, there is not a just man upon the earth that does good and sins not. God sees people the way they really are. The problem is people don't see themselves the way they really are. Paul is trying to convince a religious world that you need to understand this. Apart from Jesus Christ in your life, apart from faith in him, you're not viewed as being good in the sight of God. You are not righteous. You don't understand. You don't seek God. You turned aside from God. You're useless and you are not good. So there's God's first reason why every human being is under sin, because of the assessment of God. The second reason why every human is under sin is because of their own works, verses 13 to 18. There are two main areas of work that prove all under sin, and he starts it off proving that all people are sinners by their own speech. Verse 13, he says, Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Throat, open grave. Tongues practice deceit. Lips propagate poison. Mouth, cursing and bitterness. God says, that's what I've heard coming from people's mouths. Religion is a poisonous, deadly thing. And when people talk about spiritual things apart from truth and apart from Jesus Christ, they're promoting things that lead people to eternal death. Paul starts off this section on discussing how man is proved by his own works that he's guilty before God by naming body parts that are used for speech. You have the throat, the tongue, the lips, the mouth. And he says, I want you to understand one of the simplest ways to prove that we are not righteous, not one of us are righteous, is just by the depravity of your own speech. A person's speech reveals the depravity of the heart. There has been at times an arrogance that's seen in speech, and none of us are innocent. Don't try to somehow elevate yourself to a greater level because when it comes to what is said, the fact of the matter is we've all said things we shouldn't have said. So don't flatter yourself on this point. Admit it. There have been times we've gossiped. There have been times we've tried to elevate ourselves because we want others to think good of us. There have been times we stretched the truth a little bit. We've been angered. We've said things we regret. There have been moments in all of our lives when we filled the air with words we wish we could take back. I mean, speech is real proof that we do have a heart problem. You have to ask yourself this question. Well, uh, I realize I'm not perfect. Well, why aren't you perfect? And the proof you're not perfect is what you've said through your lips. It's no wonder that James said the real mark of spiritual depth is to be able to control your speech. But let's take a trip down memory lane of our mouths. Isn't it true we've all said things about a political leader we should have never said? 
Isn't it true we've said something about an employer or an employee or a co-worker we wish we hadn't said? Isn't it true we've said things about, oh, they weren't so nice about a minister or member of the church, we shouldn't have said it? Isn't it true that our mouth proves we're guilty and sinful? It's proved it time and time again. God could call up the record and say, you've killed people with your speech. You've killed people with your speech. You've poisoned people with your speech. We've cursed with our speech, said bitter things with our speech. Guilty, guilty, guilty is the charge against our own mouth. So what God basically says here is you proved that you are sinful by your speech and then you've proved that you are sinful by your own choice. You've made choices in direction that are just contrary to the word of God. And he, and he lists about five wrong choices and five wrong directions that people have, have taken in life. And the first one is they choose the path of blood. Verse 15, their feet are swift to shed blood. We're debating abortion. Over 600,000 babies a year will be murdered through abortion in the United States of America. You don't think we're people who choose the path of blood? One commentator said many, many, many years ago, if you want further details in this, or if you want further proof of this, just look at the news. And you'll see there's something wrong with a person's heart. Just last night, a 15-year-old girl stabbed her mother, killed her mother with a knife. That's the kind of thing that people do because their mind isn't right. They're depraved. Secondly, they choose the path of destruction. Man's depravity is the cause of destruction. I mean, yesterday in Stockton, California, they found a serial killer. He was on the loose. He was out there about to kill again when they caught him because people have a mind that chooses destructive paths. And how many times have you made the wrong choice in life where you choose a destructive path that wasn't the way of God? They choose the path of misery. That's what verse 16 says. And the destruction and misery are their paths. You know, we're living at a time where people are just choosing miserable lives. People are choosing, for example, not to work, and they frankly shouldn't eat. I went downtown Kalamazoo one time to talk to a guy at the Kalamazoo Mission who was living in his car. And when I got down there, knowing this guy had a college degree... I said to him right to his face, why don't you get a job? In fact, there's a sign right there on that building that says they need somebody to work for them. And his answer was, well, I've lost my social security card. I said, did you memorize the number? But that he didn't have an answer for. He basically is choosing a miserable way of life and we now are people who are just saying, we'll pick up the tab for it. It's wrong. It shows the depravity of man. 
They don't choose the path of peace with God. That's what verse 17 says. And the path of peace they've not known. See, man's depravity leads them to choose anything but a peaceful relationship with the Lord through Jesus Christ. They would rather live a life of total sinful chaos and insanity rather than to have peace in their life and peace with God. And that's why a lot of people are on drugs and antidepressants because they'll do anything but turn to the Lord. And they don't choose to fear God. Here's the bottom line of it, verse 18. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Whenever sin dominates, there's no fear of God. The reason why people make wrong choices is they don't fear God. They have no fear of God. You know, according to Romans 13.4, we'll get to it later in this very book, but Romans 13.4, one of the purposes of government is to use their execution sword to avenge evil and punish those who've done evil. And it's an execution sword. In other words, if people go out and murder someone, they are supposed to use government, their execution authority, given to them by God to punish those that did the evil. We've got a guy in Parkland, Florida. He walks into a school. He guns down 14 innocent students. He guns down three staff members. And he goes to court. And they say, we'll give you life in prison. Where's the justice in that? They should actually cause him or force him to face a firing squad. And actually, in my view, parents should be allowed to be on the firing squad if they chose to do it. That would be justice. But the reason why we live in such a distorted world where people don't know right from wrong and justice anymore is there is no fear of God. But there'll come a day when that'll change. So God said, you want to have proof that you aren't right with me? Well, you've got God's assessment. You also have your own works. And then you've got God's law to further add weight to the charge that you're guilty before me. Verse 19, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God, because by works of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. There are four realities about the law of God that is brought out in this text of Scripture, and the first one is the law of God is going to shut mouths. There was a minister I knew who used to tape every conversation that he ever had with anybody in his office. So if a person ever came back into the office and said, I never said that, he could pull out the tape and play it and say, here you are. That's exactly what God's law will do. Any person who gets before the Lord and claims we've kept the law, God says, all right, let's, let's call up the record of it. Here you are. Here you are, mouth shut, case closed. Secondly, God's Old Testament law establishes individual accountability. He says that the whole world may become accountable to God. The law of God shows every human is guilty and accountable to God on the wrath side. 
You see, because of God's righteousness, he's obligated to punish law violations, and we're all guilty of law violations. No one is measured up to the Old Testament law standards except Jesus Christ. The rest of us are all accountable for violations of the law. We're all guilty. The third reality is God's Old Testament law cannot justify anyone. That's what Paul says in verse 20, because by works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. See, this is where it's at. It's in the sight of God, not in the sight of people. The law of God cannot and will not justify anyone in the sight of God ever. Don't miss this point. There's no works you can ever do that'll be good enough for God. Even if you took the Old Testament law works, which are great works, But even if you took the Old Testament law works and you tried to apply them, you're never going to be good enough for God. Why? Because we're up against the righteousness of God. We've never got close to it. And finally, the Old Testament law gives knowledge of sin. Verse 20, through the law comes knowledge of sin. What that Old Testament law really does is shows us we're all sinners. We all need a Savior. Many years ago, there was an Arthur Murray dance instructor who had been out very late one Saturday night. In the wee hours of the morning, he said he staggered back to his hotel room half drunk, and he fell into his bed and went to sleep. He said the next morning, the alarm clock went off, and on the radio was a man who asked this question. If in the next few minutes... Some great disaster should happen and you should be killed. And if you should find yourself before God and he should ask you, what right do you have to come into my heaven? What would you say? Well, that dance instructor was hit hard with that question. He said, I had never heard a question like that. He said, it touched my heart deeply. He realized I didn't have an answer to that. He said, my mouth was shut. He didn't know what to say. The minister on the radio was Donald Gray Barnhouse. And after Dr. Barnhouse asked the question, he explained the answer. He said the only right that any of us would have to enter heaven would be based on the achievements of Jesus Christ. It's not based on one thing we've done. It's on the sole basis of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Dr. Barnhouse went on to say on the radio, he died for our sins, he took our penalty, and those who believe on him are going to be saved. And that dance instructor trusted Jesus Christ that very morning in that motel room, and he went on and went to school and pastored a church in Florida, and his name was D. James Kennedy. We asked the same question. Suppose you leave here and some car swerves and you're instantly in the presence of God. And God asks you, what right do you have to come into my heaven? What's your answer? What's your answer? Don't fool around with that question. Answer it. And there's only one right answer. You'll never get into God's heaven by relying upon you or your works or your religion or your morality, there's only one person that can get you into heaven, and that is Jesus Christ. You believe on him, and you will be saved. Let us pray. If you've never trusted Christ as Savior, right now in this moment, you can settle that issue. Many of us have done that years ago.
Just admit the fact that you're a sinner and invite Jesus Christ into your life to be your Savior, to take over your life. Just put it in your own words, invite him in. Father, we thank you so much for the precious word of God. Thank you for grace. We go down through this text of Scripture, Lord, and we can just mark on our own account, guilty, guilty, guilty. It's not even debatable. We're in this text. We see ourselves in this text. And we thank you for the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, who has come into this world and who took our sin and took your wrath so that we can have his righteousness. We thank you for that. We thank you that he paid it all. In Jesus' name, amen.